Our Father in heaven, as we deal with this most powerful topic, the faith of Jesus Christ, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will be here. Give me faith to believe that you can use me at this time. May your Holy Spirit be poured out on each one here. May our hearts be touched. May we see in this topic the power to transform our lives, our practices, our families. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, bear with me this morning. This is a little bit of a theological topic. I will also be speaking Sunday morning, and it will be far more intensely practical with stories from my own practice, how I've implemented some of these concepts into my practice and some of the responses that we've seen. But if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to be looking at verses 16 and 17. You know, we're reminded that the latter rain power is not going to go forward until it's united with the right arm that gives it the strength in the last days to go forward. But also, the flip side of that is our medical ministries will never be powerful until it's united with the gospel. These are meant to go hand in hand. And so I think this morning we're going to look at the very essence of where the power comes from in the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul is speaking, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. <clears throat> Many think of Paul as a theologian, but Paul is overlying theological principles on the gospel story. And one of the code words that Paul uses for, the, for what happened in Christ's life is the word gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. What does Paul mean by the gospel? <clears throat> Paul is talking about what Jesus Christ did as that one righteous act in saving every last one of us. The fact that Jesus lived and died for your sins and for my sins. The gospel, the gospel at this time, and Christians were third class citizens. They were looked down on, um, they weren't respected. I don't think I should have given up my phone because now I'm not sure what time it is, but. I'm three hours off, but that'll work. <clears throat> so the gospel, people were looked down, and Paul comes out and says, I am not ashamed of this event that Jesus Christ, our Savior, hung on a cross for your sin and for my sin. Paul is using this word gospel to summarize and to grasp hold of that whole picture of what Jesus did. It is the power, the very dynamite, <clears throat> of God to salvation. The gospel story has the power to change your life and my life and our patient's life. In verse 17, it is the righteousness of God, or for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now as we begin this talk, it's titled The Faith of Jesus. This is a topic that has been obscured among almost all modern Christians and even Seventh-day Adventists. 
It's not been understood as it should. And there's a reason for that. We'll come back to this, but the question is, whose faith is this? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Does my faith reveal God's righteousness? There must be a greater faith than that. The problem we have is that modern scholars and modern translators of the Bible could not conceive of the idea that God could have faith and that Jesus, who was God, could have faith. After all, he knows the end from the beginning. Turn over to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and we'll come back to Romans 1. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. How is the righteousness of God apart from the law revealed? In Jesus Christ. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Who did the law and the prophets testify of? Christ. Even the righteousness of God, which is through the faith. What does your Bible say? The faith in Jesus. So it depends on what translation you have. James, who did our morning devotions last year, talked about the authorized version, the King James Version, as having so many advantages theologically that he encouraged us to go back and look at that. Most every modern translation, including the one I'm reading from, the New King James, reads this, that the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ... To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, makes this a redundant passage. This is those who have faith in Jesus and and believe in him. But the King James Version of the Bible translates it, the righteousness of God which is through the faith of Jesus. Christ to all and on all who believe. You know, it's not wrong to have faith in Jesus. But the power comes from the faith of Jesus. We have it turned around 180 degrees, and I believe the the devil has tried to hold his hand over the Bible and even change it in our modern translations so that we will miss out on this aspect, the faith of Jesus. Back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There is a faith that God gives us that generates faith in us. It's the faith of God that causes our faith to take hold. The power is 180 degrees apart from how we've normally portrayed it. The power is in the faith of Jesus. We love God because he first loved us. It's the goodness of God that draws us to repentance. In everything in our spiritual life, God is always the initiator. Paganism turns it around the other way. It turns it around to where the focus is on us. If I just have enough faith, then I can be saved. If I depend on my faith for my salvation, I will always be insecure. 
I will never have a certainty of my salvation. I will always be doubting myself. But if I depend on the faith of one whose faith has never failed, the very faith of Jesus, a faith that justifies God and shows that he is just, that's a faith that can never fail. And so, as we look today, I want to make the case that Jesus, all of his life, lived by faith. We don't have that faith in ourselves, but he gives it to us. And it's by hearing the gospel over and over, by spending that hour every morning contemplating the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes, that faith is created in our lives. And that faith response begins. Well, there is a theologian, not a Seventh-day Adventist, and someone who's not embraced by the evangelical community, Richard Hayes, who's a professor of New Testament at Duke University. He's written his dissertation on the faith of Jesus. And you can buy his book. I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to delve into this in a very deep way. It's written in a scholarly way. But a quote from his book that I just think is powerful from Richard Hayes. Faith of Jesus should be understood as a concentric expression, which begins always from the faith of Christ himself, but which includes necessarily the answering faith of the believer who claims that faith as their own. God is always the initiator of everything in our spiritual life. In fact, our very life, we didn't call ourselves into existence. We don't save ourselves. We love because he loved us. It's his faith that he bestows on us. And that is a perfect faith. The faith of Jesus proves God's faithfulness toward us. Let me read a quote. Well, actually, let me, some, I was going to put up one slide which diagrams a story. And I didn't think it was really probably right for me to go through a diagram of a story because the last thing in the world I was was an English major. And my grammar is terrible. My wife's back there laughing at it. But in every good story, there is a battle going on. And it's no different in the story of the plan of salvation. So picture with me the theme of a story. God wants to accomplish a purpose. What does he want to accomplish? God wants to accomplish creation. God wants to accomplish salvation. In fact, God wants to accomplish the very securing of the whole universe. And God has an agent, Jesus Christ. God's agent is Jesus Christ, who is in this epic battle to accomplish the purposes of God. And in accomplishing our salvation, he has an adversary. Every story that you read has this theme. Many of them are perverted gospel stories, the whole Star Wars theme. Who's going to prevail? They fight back and forth and back and forth. This story has the same thing. This is the story that's the heart of every other story that captivates our hearts. 
Jesus Christ has an adversary who is out to defeat him at every single purpose, at every single point in accomplishing our salvation. But Jesus Christ has a tool at his disposal. That tool is faith. And by faith, Jesus Christ was victorious. Desire of Ages, page 21, turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking onto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not mine own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son, it returns in praise, in joyous service. A tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circle of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. So we have this gospel story. I want to dwell just a little bit on what that struggle was like for Christ. Was it a real battle? Could he have failed? What was involved? All of his life he lived by faith. All of his life he depended upon the Father. And Jesus had a strong communion with his Father. Every morning he would get up early in the morning and commune with his Father. He felt his Father's presence with him throughout the day. He got his mission and marching orders for the day from the daily communion that he had with his Father. Jesus Christ lived by faith, but this faith was not without a struggle. Turn over to Matthew chapter 26. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a sense of this struggle. We see how this faith that Jesus wishes to give to all of us, the very faith of Jesus was wrought out in an intense struggle. So Matthew, chapter 26. He'd just recently been in the upper room. His very disciples were arguing just that very night as to who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom that was to come. It looked like his ministry had amounted to almost nothing after three and a half years. And here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. The Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, goes into this in far more detail. We don't have time to look at that this morning. But I would encourage you to read that and read it from the perspective that this is the feelings that Christ is feeling as he goes through the 
bearing the cup that he has to bear. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Christ is beginning to feel the curse. He's beginning to feel the separation that sin causes. And he is beginning to have a sense of his Father's presence being withdrawn from him as he identifies with and bears the sin of the whole world. He has to drink this cup to the bitter dregs. And in his humanity, he is feeling, I cannot do this. Father, if there's any other way, any other way to save lost humanity, then let's do that plan, but not this. He's feeling the pressure. Then he came to his disciples and he found them asleep and said to Peter, How, What, could you not watch with me just one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Even in Christ's deepest hour of temptation, he's still concerned about his disciples. The spirit is indeed willing and the flesh is weak. In fact, not only concerned about them, almost sounds like he understands their weakness. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Have you ever felt the conviction that God wants you to do something that you don't want to do? And over and over you go back and say, No, Lord, I don't want to do it. No, I don't want to do it. Jesus felt this way. Three times he goes to his father and says, No, Lord, I don't want to do this. But three times he said, But not my will, but thine be done. In my own experience, you can wrestle and wrestle and wrestle, but when you finally say, All right, Lord, this isn't what I want, but I want your will to be done, that brings a peace, brings an end to the struggle. And he came and found them sleeping again. Their eyes were heavy, so he left them. He went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Jesus was feeling an intense physical struggle. Desire of Ages brings this out more eloquently than I can ever say, so I'm turning over to page 690. Desire of Ages, page 690, it reads in the middle of the page, turning away, Jesus sought again his retreat and fell prostrate, overcome by the horror of a great darkness. The, man, the humanity of the Son of God trembled at that trying hour. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith may not fail, but for his own tempted, agonized soul. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty man. It was not yet too late. He might wipe the, the, the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of a sin. I will go back to my father. Can you get a sense of the story, the drama that is being portrayed here in front of the whole universe? There's not another story that's ever come as close to this drama. 
Will the Son of God drink the cup of the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequence of the curse to save, the curse of sin to save the guilty? The words fall tremblingly from the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Three times has he uttered that prayer. Three times has humanity shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now the history of the human race comes up before the world's redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law left to themselves must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin. The woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise up before him. He beholds its impending fate and his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. He will not turn from his mission. Having made this decision, he fell dying to the ground from which he had partially risen. This was an intense, very difficult conflict that he was engaged in. Many Christians, evangelicals, some Seventh-day Adventists, think, you know, Jesus knew the beginning to the end. He knew. He said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again. He knew that he just had to hold on for three days and that he would come through the other end. Look at Luke chapter 23. Jesus is feeling the curse of sin. He is feeling the separation. He is feeling for the first time ever in his life being separated from his father. He never counted on being separated from his father. And he's beginning to realize that this might consume me forever. And he decides no matter what the cost. I will stay true to my mission. Was Jesus tempted to give up? Certainly. What was the devil tempting him with? I can imagine he was saying, look at those disciples. They were just, they don't even get it what you're here for. They were arguing just last night as to who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom. They don't understand any of your principles. In fact, they're not even, they're just sleeping. Look at all these people, your people, the Jews. It's not a one of them that understands what you're here for. In fact, they, they're going to crucify you. Was Jesus tempted to abort the mission? Absolutely. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, after Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And then the people stood looking on, and even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. 
The devil doesn't tempt you to do something that you can't do. Could he save himself? Absolutely. He could have called 10,000 legions of angels and they would have come immediately at his beckoning call. This was a real temptation. The second time, verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. This was a real temptation. And then, in verse 39, a third temptation. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. He could save himself like that. But he couldn't save himself and us. The cross of Christ reveals to us that the creator of the universe loves his creation. He loves you and me and all of humanity more than he loves even himself. That he was willing to give up his own existence so that we may live. You know, Seventh-day Adventists should understand this better than any other Christian. Because we understand that the soul is not immortal. We understand the difference between sleep death and eternal death. Jesus would go and see the little girl, um, Jairus' daughter, who had died. And the household of, of, of Jairus came to him and said, don't trouble the master any longer, the child is dead. Jesus says, stop, don't fear, the child's not dead, she's just asleep. When news came to Jesus that Lazarus had died, the disciples were a little troubled, thinking, why doesn't he go? This is his best friend, one of his very best friends. And Jesus said to them, well, Lazarus sleeps. And then they thought, oh, well, then the next day Jesus said, all right, let's go. And they're thinking, why are we going if Lazarus is just asleep? And Jesus has to make it very plain. Lazarus is dead in the terms that they could understand. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of sleep, death. Jesus understood that this was death, eternal separation from his Father, and he could not see that he might come through this alive. Desire of Ages, page 753, a passage I'm sure you're all familiar with, but again, it's so eloquently written. I'm going to read it this morning. Upon Christ as our substitute and surety was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity, filled the soul of his son with consternation. All his life, Christ had been publishing to a fallen world the good news of the Father's mercy and pardoning love. Salvation for the chief of sinners was his theme. 
But now, with the terrible weight of guilt he bears, he cannot see the Father's reconciling face. The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior is that in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. He couldn't what? He couldn't see that he was coming through this. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. Christ knew the Old Testament scriptures. He knew the prophecy. But his experience was telling him the exact opposite. You are not coming through this. When emotions go against the facts, there's only one thing that will sustain you at that time. What was the tool that Christ used when he was tempted so severely? Faith. Faith that clung on to the fact that God's word means what God's word says. That even when feelings part with, with fact, it was faith that caused him to believe the word of God. And it was faith that caused him to conquer when was the sacrifice for our sin made? Was it when he bowed his head and went to the grave? No. It was when he hung on that cross and he drank that bitter cup to its bitter end. Let me read Desire of Ages, page 756. Suddenly a gloom lifted from the cross and in clear trumpet-like tones that seemed to sound throughout creation, Jesus cried, It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. A light encircled the cross and the face of the Savior shone with a glory like the sun. He then bowed his head upon his breast and he died. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of his father. He understood his, ju his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission he committed himself to God, the sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was the victor. Jesus Christ lived his whole life by faith. This faith has been tempted. This faith has been tried. 
This faith has been ground up in the crucible of the greatest shame, the greatest sacrifice that any human being could ever go through, let alone the Son of God. And it stood the test. The faith of Jesus is a perfect faith. The faith of Jesus held secure. It did not fail. It was a perfect sacrifice. It was a perfect faith. And it is the very faith that he gives to us today. And at the very end of that sacrifice, exhausted as he was, faith claimed the victory. By faith, he recounted the Old Testament prophecies. By faith, he recounted how his father had been with him every single step of the way. And he chose to believe the promises of God over the feelings of his experience. That is faith. That is the only faith that will bring Seventh-day Adventists through the very final crisis that those who stand to see Jesus come. Not our faith. The faith of Jesus. The faith that withstands every test unfailingly. We have a forerunner. We have someone who made it through. But there will come a time when we feel forsaken of God. That we feel that God does not accept us because of our sin. Where it looks hopeless And we're only tasting a small part, a sip of the cup that Christ drank to the bitter dregs. But the father never forsook his son. It's the result of sin that he could not feel his presence. And so the faith of Jesus has a practical application. And we're going to look at this a lot more on Sunday. We have 10 more minutes now. I just want to read a couple of more quotes that make this point. Ellen White, in the 1888 materials, page 217, The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus Christ. The commandments of God have been been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed by Seventh-day Adventists as of equal importance. The law and the gospel going hand in hand. I cannot find language to express this subject in its fullness. The faith of Jesus. She says it is talked of but it is not understood. The devil has managed to obscure this from our view, and it is time that as we see the events in the world shaping up, as we see the health message in the gospel coming together, as we get a sense that we may be living in the very last days of this earth's history, we need all the powerful tools that we can grasp to make it through. We need the faith of Jesus. Just a couple more of these. She talks about this over and over and over again. The message that was given to the people in these meetings presented in clear lines, not alone the commandments of God as part of the third angel's message, but the faith of Jesus, which comprehends more than is generally supposed. And it will be well for the third angel's message to be proclaimed in all its points, for the people need every jot and tittle of it. If we proclaim the commandments of God God, and leave the other scarcely touched, the message is marred in our hands. The faith of Jesus is something that we need to understand. Um, that was in the uh, manuscript releases, page 1216. In the 1888 materials, page 212, Ellen White says, The faith of Jesus has been overlooked and treated in an indifferent, careless manner. 
it has not occupied the prominent position in which it was revealed to John. What is she referring to? She's referring to John the Revelator when he says, Here are they who keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus. The one place our Bibles get it right. Well, the faith of Jesus has a very practical application. On Sunday, I'm going to just give you some examples of how we can be a part in creating faith in our patients. You can create faith in your spouse, in your children, in the way that we implant the truths of Scripture into their minds. One of the ways that Jesus creates faith in our lives, the way that he gives us faith, is that he reveals himself over and over to us. He reveals the gospel, the good news. And it's no wonder that Ellen White counsels us to spend a thoughtful hour every morning, especially on the closing scenes. You cannot go wrong when you look at Christ as our example. God's word is creative. There's nothing in the universe that stops God's creative word. When he says, let there be light, instantly there's light, except for one thing, unbelief. Unbelief is the killer of faith. When Jesus comes to you and says, you are righteous, you are mine, I have redeemed you, why isn't it, yes, I am righteous? Because unbelief runs so deep in our hearts. The only thing holding Seventh-day Adventists back from completing the mission that we have been called to is what? Unbelief. It wasn't God's purpose that the children of Israel should wander in the wilderness for 40 years. God intended to take them out to teach them some things, to renew his covenant with them, and to lead them into the promised land. The book of Hebrews states that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They were not people of faith. Seventh-day Adventists were called to also cross into the promised land. And we look at those Israelites and think, oh, wow, if only I'd been there, it might have been different. But you know what? We've been on the banks of the Jordan River now for five generations of Adventism. It was never meant to be. Could the same thing be said of us that we have not yet entered in because of unbelief? That's got to be the cause. God has been sending messages of the gospel that if understood would cause us to repent. And repentance is the remedy for unbelief. The faith of Jesus has the power to transform our lives. It has the power to transform this end-time church. It has the power to transform your patient's life. I want to close 
with a quote from a sermon by Dane Griffin. Many of you knew Dane. He was actually instrumental in helping us in the early days of Amen and helping to get the Life and Health Network started as a ministry media arm of the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network in a way that we could practically unite the gospel and the health message in a way that could play a role in finishing the work in these last days. Dane was the health ministries director of the Michigan Conference before he passed away from kidney cancer about two years ago. Dane was completely committed to this cause. Even as he was dying of cancer and could barely get out of bed, he would pray, one more project for thy cause. But in the very last sermon that he gave before he died, he wrestled with this idea of faith. Faith grows by earnest struggle with doubt and fear. So he stated in a sermon called Faith Without the Fizzies, I realize now that faith is not about the outcome. Faith is about growing from trial to trial, from faith to faith, in order to be ready for the outcome that God permits. Faith is not an insurance policy against unwanted troubles. Faith is a roadmap, a GPS, God's positioning system that will lead us unfailingly to God's perfect destination for us. Faith is not given to avoid problems. Faith is given to avoid failure while enduring problems. Faith is dynamic. Where will my journey take me? That's up to God. I just want his faith that overcometh the world, his faith that develops me to meet each need in trial, his faith that prepares me for the only guarantee that faith offers, for by grace you are saved through faith. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, it's amazing that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, would step down into this one lost world. That your creative Faith saw in this world a pearl without price. Something that you were willing to give up everything else to obtain. That is truly the faith of Jesus. Father in heaven, I pray that as we study the themes related to the faith of Jesus, that we will see how practical this is in our everyday lives. I pray that we will begin to see the world as you see it. I pray that we'll begin to see our lives in the way that you see. Overcoming lives. Righteous lives. I pray that as a church we will see that you have called us to be that final group that keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus. Let it be now in our lives, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.
This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.